Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Ag News Daily Podcast. I'm Mike Pearson, hosting the show today with my wonderful co-host, Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you? I'm pretty good today. How about you, Mike? You know, I am just pretty good as well. The rain is falling. It's a little chilly. Things are getting muddy. Mm -hmm. Yes, that weather. It's this time of year. I know. I just hate it rebirth and all mm-hmm, that garbage but blah it's just kind of gloomy good napping weather that's what i think it is good napping weather it's good napping and uh, like chicken soup weather you know or chili yeah yeah exactly something that mm-hmm. warms you to the yeah soul. i have some baked potatoes i got some baked potato soup cooking in the crock pot for when i get home wow look at you man yeah look i'm adulting well yeah i might go get a slice of casey's pizza that's healthy after your workout here. Yeah, I've earned it. I've earned it. After I go work oh, okay. out, I can eat two or three slices of Casey's pizza and a couple of Casey's cookies and some, uh, <laughs> you know, chocolate milk. It just balances it all out. Exactly. Because I was going to eat that stuff anyway. Now I've worked out. Uh-huh. I've earned it. <laughs> right. That's science. Yeah. Delaney, mm-hmm. you'll understand as you get older. All right, if you say so. I do say so. You know, speaking of buying food, which is what we're talking about here, we had interesting news from 2016. I don't know if you saw this, Delaney, but the USDA reported that retail food prices in 2016 declined for the first time in nearly 50 years. Wow. Yes. So prices at the grocery store, the retail level that Joe and Jane Consumer are spending, were lower last year for the first time since 1967. And that was just U.S. prices? Uh, yes. I'm 99% sure all USDA traffic okay. is, is U.S. Okay. prices. Yeah, I'm sure it is. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, the only other times we were close to this was during the depths of the recession. But even then, food mm. prices increased, yeah, you know, percentage points of a uh, percent, you know, one, one-tenth, three-tenths. This year, they were actually down almost 1.3% year over year. So, you know, we're seeing deflation happen when you look at crude oil, when you look at food prices. Right. And yet we're in an environment where the Federal Reserve is looking to increase interest rates to fight inflation, where we're seeing it reflected in the stock market and, you know, perhaps in, in wages. So it's an interesting time to be alive, Delaney. That deflation in food prices, too, makes me wonder if it's because 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 of inflation or deflation or because it's just getting so much cheaper or easier to produce food. Well, and I think that's a big part of it. You know, usually yeah. people can measure the price of commodities, whether it's industrial metals or crude oil or corn and soybean, you know, you name it as a barometer of inflation. But when we're in a period like this where we are producing massive amounts of everything, it just brings that whole sector down. And uh, I think one of the big reasons for that is just, uh, pork and beef prices came down so much in 2016 mm-hmm. that probably helped uh, lower the prices. So let's see. It doesn't give me their metric, but it says declining prices, retail prices for meat, eggs, and dairy were the uh, the main drivers. You know, I, I think that's a double-bladed, double-edged sword because as a consumer, that's that's good news. But then as a producer or a farmer we're not bringing in as much income if food as a whole, the price of it is going down. Exactly. It does us not a lot of good to sell stuff cheaper. 
We want to sell more, more expensively and put that difference in our pocket. <laughs> and um, But right. one of the mm -hmm. upsides, I think, looking down the line is that as things get cheaper, hopefully we can, as low prices do, increase demand, get more consumers trying those higher-end proteins, whether it is eggs, dairy, pork, or beef. And then once prices rise, they'll decide, hey, I really like that milk. I really like that cheese. Mm -hmm. I really like having an omelet in the morning with a steak on the side. And they'll continue to spend more money. So that's the hope. But, uh, yeah, that's the hope. Now, didn't you find out that prices are going to get cheaper for Japanese consumers here shortly? Yes. Speaking of demand and prices, they on Saturday, they will. that's the beginning of Japan's fiscal year. So they are reducing tariffs for Australian beef again. And I believe Australia has some of the cheapest tariff prices for importing beef to Japan. So that's not really positive for the United States, but maybe we can piggyback off of what Australia is doing and get into that market as well. Yeah, hopefully President Trump can uh, fast track some kind of a bilateral agreement there with Japan. And yes. Say, hey, look, we want the deal Australia's getting, but, you know, yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Let's see. Had some other news coming out of the White House. So this is something President Trump is doing, which I think broadly is beneficial to especially our uh, our Western beef production friends. President Trump yesterday signed a congress congressional resolution directing the BLM Bureau of Land Management to repeal their planning 2.0 rule. Now this was a rule that uh, was put into effect, I believe, towards the latter uh, part of Obama's presidency. And the, the idea behind it was the Bureau of Land Management needs to look at more things when it decides who can use all of these federal acres and they were supposed to prioritize social and environmental change um, which you know there's a lot of arguments to be made for beef on rangeland as a great piece of, uh, of environmental stewardship but a lot of times that was getting overlooked so now the BLM has to go back to ensuring multiple uses of public lands which should include grazing uh, going forward. So that, that should be fairly positive. And other news coming out of Washington. A few senators have been trying to reintroduce the Opportunities for Fairness in Farming Act of 2017. And so this bill, bill is dealing with checkoff dollars for the different commodity groups. And it wants to take that program from anti-competitive actions and contracting with the organization that lobbies. Um, and I think maybe trying to differentiate more um, of where those checkoff dollars are going. Because I think, as we discussed earlier, checkoff dollars are really supposed to be the outreach and education arm of those commodity groups as opposed to lobbying and legislation. Isn't that right, Mike? Yes, that's correct. Because checkoff is paid by every producer. And then whether you join, for instance, in the beef side, NCBA, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, or RCAF, um, those, those groups both advocate for different policy. But checkoff, you're exactly right. It's there to promote the industry or the, not industry, uh, the, the, the type of good as a whole. So encourage more ways to use it. Right. You know, be generally bipartisan. Yes. So with this bill, I, I guess they're just trying to maybe draw more of a line in the sand of where this money is going and how it can be used. Yeah. You know, I think there's been some uh, discussion, maybe to put it nicely, over how those funds are spent and which groups end up doing the work, even if it's nonpartisan work, a group is getting paid to do it. 
and other groups then, you know, mm -hmm. they don't like to see their money going to help a group whose policy stance they disagree with, even if it's a nonpartisan thing right. that's being published. So it'll be interesting. And what was, what was interesting about that, yeah. yes, but speaking of politics, so that bill, unless it's changed since I saw it this morning, it does not have any major farm state senators. I believe it was led off by uh, right. the, the senator from New Jersey, which, uh, you know, not a lot of, I, yes, I, there are and Utah people. and Utah. Right. That's the other one. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. Right. Mm hmm. Well, Delaney, it should will. we, uh, before we get well, to our interview, should we do some markets? Yes, let's do that. Read the closes for today. You betcha. Let's take a look at corn first. May corn closed up half a cent at 358 and a quarter. December corn was unchanged on the day at 381 and three quarters. Over in soybeans, May beans down three and a quarter at 968 and three quarters. November beans down four and a half at 967 and three quarters. In wheat, May wheat up three quarters of a cent at 425 and a quarter. D-sweet down one and a quarter at 473 and three quarters. Checking out the livestock trade. A lot of green on the screen there in livestock today. April live cattle closed up 57.5 cents at 121.35. June live cattle at deferred month there, the most heavily traded, closed up 25 cents, ending the day at 111.85. In feeder cattle, feeder cattle front month, um, April cattle up a dollar 45, closed the day at 134,400. Lean hogs up 20 cents at 65.30 to end the day. Delaney. Who are we going to talk to today? Well, Mike, as mentioned in previous episodes, we are going to be talking to Dr. Connor Ferguson. He is a Northwest Missouri State professor. And besides his background with teaching and being involved in weed management, we're going to pick his brains a little bit more about dicamba and as an active ingredient in herbicides. Joining us now is Dr. Connor Ferguson. He has a PhD in spray application in weed sciences. He is a, currently a professor at Northwest Missouri State, and we're excited to have him on today to talk herbicides and what's going on in the agronomic industry with us today. So, Connor, just to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where you went to school, and what really got you involved in this industry? Sure. Well, well thanks for having me on, on today's show. Um, I, I grew up in, in Norman, Oklahoma, which, uh, you know, I know might be fighting words in this part of the country, but, uh, you know, I assure you I, I got my bachelor's degree at, in uh, plant and soil sciences with minor in ag business at Oklahoma State University, and then got my master's in agronomy with a focus on weed science at the University of Nebraska, and then most recently got my Ph.D. Um, in agrochemical spray application and weed sciences at the University of Queensland in Australia. So really what it was, um, I was an undergrad student at OSU, and you know, after one summer with a crop consulting company called CropQuest out of Dodge City, Kansas, I was convinced I was going to be a crop consultant and, and life was going to be good. And then I took the weed science class at OSU. Uh, at, at the time it had sort of multiple professors teaching different sections. And so the lab was taught by Dr. Tom Pieper, and that class was the only time in four years I got on the back of a tractor uh, in class and just fell in love with weed science. It was, you know, a lot of fun and, and um, got to work with the uh, weed scientist at OSU who had just started named uh, Joe Armstrong. And um, so I started in a, a, an undergraduate research project looking at 
the sensitivity of winter wheat varieties to metribuzin. So uh, that was a really fun kind of two-year project, and you know, kind of from there, uh, looked into grad school, and then of course, um, now I'm still at a university, but teaching uh, can't get away. It's a great life, but at the same time, you know, it's uh, it's fun to be on the other side of the desk, as I say now. Yeah. Now, what is metribuzin? Where would we have seen that, or would we have seen it on the uh, the producer side? Yeah, sure. So metribuzin is generally uh, Sencor, or of course it's uh, you know product that's been on the market for many years. Um, in fact, I think it's mostly sold as, as a generic now. Um, it's a photosystem 2 inhibitor, similar to atrazine, but would be used in soybeans. Um, one of the one of the positives about it, it's you know got a, a very strong um, weed control spectrum, but one of the drawbacks, which is uh, why it has been used less. Uh, particularly since, you know, the mid-90s and, and introduction of Roundup-ready crops is, you know, kind of the visible damage on the crop. Um, but, you know, it's starting to show up in a lot of tank mix products, some of the uh, newer products to the market, like um, I know Authority MTZ comes to mind where it's a, a tank mix uh, including Metribuzin, uh, as well as a lot of other new products that are um, kind of working in old chemistries. Because as we've dealt with increasing I instances of herbicide resistance, a lot of times our, our solutions are actually going back to products that haven't been used for a while, but kind of finding new ways to package them up and make them more effective than they were kind of on their own, you know, several years ago. Well, and speaking of, of tank mixes, some of our new dicambas can now be tank mixed. Is that right? That's right. So, um, in fact, in my spray application class that I teach, um, it's almost a weekly event that we go to extend application or extendamax application requirements.com um, and, and look at some of the new uh, changes really I mean in the last two months the nozzle list has gone from just the TTI 11004 to now a pretty um, well at least a much larger nozzle list than they had and, and multiple pressures and flow rate types uh, for those spray tips and then now you can tank mix extendamax with several herbicides, um, but depending on which herbicide you use, uh, for instance with Cobra, if you tank mix with that, you also have to add a drift control adjuvant called Intact uh, as part of the, the use of that. And, you know, certainly having a website with kind of up-to-date tank mixes and, and changes to the label is, is something new that certainly growers are, are you know, learning to, to work with. Um, particularly where, you know, oftentimes labels would be set for, you know, many years without change. And so just kind of being, I, I guess, more familiar with a, a constantly changing label based on the regulations uh, associated with these new dicamba products. Right. That, uh, that so, real-time uh, update is nice. Sorry, Delaney. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, so a lot, a lot of these now that have the dicamba as the active ingredients like Extendamax and Genia and List, what, what's the difference between all of them? How can farmers figure out which one is the best for, solution for their fields? So that's a great question. Um, in fact, so between Ingenia and, and Extendamax, so BASF and Monsanto have partnered really heavily on the dicamba project. Um, Ingenia is BASF's product and Extendamax is Monsanto's. Um, and then also... Uh, though not, I, I think, as, as well-known, there is a dicamba product from DuPont. Um, I think it's called Phenexapan. It's spelled F-E-N-X-A-P-A-N. 
Um, so apologies if it's mispronounced. But So the difference mostly between Ingenia and Extendamax is a, is a specific type of, of salt formulation for that dicamba. And so the Extendamax salt is, is one that's, um, you know, been sort of run through most of the studies uh, through the EPA. And so one of the aspects about using Extendamax is that you can, um, you know, tank mix it with a lot more products. One of the, the interesting aspects of Ingenia is because it's a different salt formulation than, um, than Extendamax is that it comes with certain requirements in, in terms of handling. It's not gone through all of the regulatory uh, or all of the, the environmental um, risk assessments yet. And so one of the things that applicators would have to do using Ingenia is wear a respirator, which they wouldn't have to do with Extendamax. Um, but using Ingenia allows you to apply up to 100 PSI uh, with your TTI-11004, whereas you're limited to 63 PSI uh, with Extendamax. I'm not really commenting on, on which product is better, but um, at least from a spray application side, I would hesitate to recommend anyone apply at 100 PSI uh, for the, the small droplets that even with a large droplet nozzle you can still end up with, as well as the stress that it puts, puts on your um, spray system. You know, certainly high pressure is going to cause wear and tear to happen a bit more quickly. So, um, But, you know, both products can be used in kind of your normal um, PSI range. It's just Currently, Extendamax has a lot more tank mix um, abilities than uh, than Ingenia. Now, Connor, when I decide that I'm going to go ahead, I've got a problem with Palmer amaranth or, you know, you name it, one of these uh, Roundup-resistant weeds, if I decide that I'm going to go with the Extendamax beans, I can just go to the farm store and buy some Clarity and spray it on, right? <laughs> well, see, that's... Uh... It's a little bit of a, particularly here in Missouri, but I think, you know, we saw a lot of trouble with last year where just because the the seed is tolerant to dicamba doesn't mean you can spray any dicamba over the top as part of the agreement of growing that crop. And so, um, you know, one of the things even uh, with one of the classes I teach, we are our local co-op visit, and they're not even going to carry dicamba that's not Extendamax simply for that reason mm -hmm that if a grower comes in and wants to buy dicamba, they can have some sort of safety to know that, you know, there's really no way they could misuse that because it's not a dicamba product that's not labeled for the new seed. And so as part of the the, the agreement to planting an extend-type crop is you have to, of course, use um, the the approved dicamba products like Ingenia, Extendamax, Phenexapan, um, and those are just the three on the market currently uh, for that uh, seed trade. So this is highly regulated, the dicamba active ingredient. Are there general regulations as a whole, or is it each has a different regulation? So that's a great question. Well, obviously, you know, one of the aspects of, of companies and, and products going through the EPA um, in general, because it's the same active ingredient, probably a lot of the um, environmental data was able to be utilized for from one to the other. But since each formulation is different and it's a different company, their own in-house data might be different than, you know, BASF to Monsanto. So um, 
in general, though, the, with that partnership between BASF and Monsanto, it's kind of the reason why both products were labeled very closely to one another because they've kind of gone through it at the same time. Um, but, you know, if they didn't partner, one product might not get labeled for a much longer time simply because of the different formulation aspects of each uh, each product. And, of course, the you know, they might have the same active ingredient but a different surfactant, uh, which may cause one product to take longer on the regulatory process than the other. So, you know, it's a, it's a very complex, um, you know, set of, of rules and guidelines. But in general where, you know, obviously BASF is hoping to have growers use their product on, you know, Extendamax uh, soybeans and, and cotton as well, but then obviously they're going to hope that, you know, that partnership with the seed company is uh, there as well to ensure that that um, kind of joint partnership works out. As far as anti-drift regulations go, what potential risks do you see with dicamba if drift were to occur? Other than obviously a couple of states have set fines now um, for drifting if, if that were to occur. Sure. So so one of the aspects, and, and you know, just to define for, for people who may be unaware, um, there are multiple kinds of drift. So one of the, the drift types is what's called vapor drift, where you spray your product and then just due to the chemistry of the pesticide, um, the product sort of becomes into a gas and then moves through the wind off the target site. What we saw last summer with dicamba in particular was more vapor drift issues than spray drift, particularly where people were going out and applying dicamba formulations that are very volatile. The old ones are, are very volatile, and it's one of the things that the, the industry has moved so swiftly on with Extendamax and with Ingenia is to um, to develop a, a low volatility to almost no volatility. And, and that was one of the aspects that the EPA really wanted to ensure was taken care of, is a no volatility formulation. So that said, if you were to go out and apply these new dicamba products uh, as you're supposed to, uh, from a volatility standpoint, there wouldn't be any drift. In terms of spray drift, they certainly curbed that by mandating that you use larger droplet size nozzles at lower pressures to ensure that the amount of small droplets, often called driftable fines, are minimized where you don't have that off-target movement. Additionally, as part of the label, you're not able to spray, sort of depending on the product, as much as 220 feet of your field at the border particularly where you've got a neighboring crop or sensitive area that's not um, dicamba tolerance. And so in addition to addressing, of course, the volatility aspect, mandating the larger droplet size nozzles and creating the buffer zone, in theory, they've really kind of taken drift out of this scenario, um, which is certainly you know, quite, I, I think, a little bit of a peace of mind for the grower um, but in terms of, of anti or you know curbing drift, in terms of regulation from from governments, so certainly here in Missouri, um, House Bill 662, which is currently on uh, Governor Eric Greitens' desk at the moment uh, to be signed, it was passed by the House and the Senate overwhelmingly, um, which basically sets a fine for 
growers who do go out and, and spray these products illegally. Um, though, I mean, a lot of a lot of anti-drift legislation is already on the books for a lot of states. It's just where we saw a lot of vapor drift. I think that's an issue um, that we hadn't seen as much in previous cases and in previous situations, where it's mostly been spray drift, where you know small droplets have moved off of the the field onto a neighboring field. And so that's I think you know hoping to be curbed. Um, and, and kind of a little bit more sweeping legislation in terms of the language to take care of some of these issues. Yeah, provide some incentive to uh, really watch your P's and Q's when you're applying. Absolutely. And even, you know, when I had mentioned that, that local co-op had visited, um, you know, there are even some co-ops that I've heard of around the area that aren't even applying Extendamax. So I think a lot of people and a lot of um application groups are a little bit concerned and kind of shutting off the, you know, creating an even narrower window than the label states for spraying that to just ensure that there's absolutely no way they're causing any issues, um, you know, inadvertently. Because I think oftentimes most of the things that, that tend to happen when when you follow the label and do everything right, you know, em- environmental conditions can change, winds can shift on you, you know, quickly. Um, and so to, to minimize risk and minimize liability, they're going to take you know even more precautions than they really probably ever have. Now, with your background in weed science and knowledge of how these weeds do change, they do uh, evolve, how long do you think this, uh, this dicamba trait is going to be useful in, for instance, Palmer amaranth? Um, has it developed any resistance yet to dicamba? Do we have... 15 years or three years? How long until it really, we have to create another uh, pesticide? Unfortunately, for the creation of new modes of action, um, you're just not really seeing a lot of, of new creation in terms of regulation preventing a lot of new products from entering the market, though that will change now with a change of administration, and particularly at the EPA. Um, so we might see new modes of action enter the market at least in the next four years or possibly eight um, but in terms of protecting dicamba, I mean, it's really quite unfortunate that we've, for the most part, lost Roundup. I mean, it was when it was first introduced to the market, it was such a tremendous herbicide, uh, worked so well, you know, zero crop injury. And so to have, you know, to have it be used only uh, and, and sometimes in lower than recommended rates, selected for weeds that can withstand normal applications. And so um, I'm sure there are some growers that are still able to go out and utilize Roundup as a part of their weed management program, and it works great. But for most, uh, I would say for the most part, um, just due to, you know, weeds that can move seed in the wind and certainly sharing of of equipment and things, a lot of farms now are are dealing with Roundup resistance. If growers are are really, you know, effectively rotating their chemicals and using a strong pre-emergence program and, you know, and it's, it's really the mar- the the um, message that the industry is pushing as well is, you know, have more than one, often more than two modes of action in your tank to where you're going out not selecting for weeds that might withstand uh, or be resistant to a certain herbicide chemistry just to keep those options available. And I think that that's moving forward the message, and I think, you know, from both extension and um, 
the industry, I think that message is, is really strongly coming across. In terms of resistance to dicamba with Palmer amaranth, I'm not aware of any uh, resistance yet, but you know, plants are pretty amazing in how quickly they can um, develop tolerances to, to herbicides. And so I, I would hope that you know, in 10 years we can still talk about the viability of, of these dicamba products, but I think it's going to cause you know, it's going to need growers to, to, you know, have to rotate their chemistries, plant different crops, and, you know, keep this product as viable as long as possible. Connor, I have one more question for you before we wrap it up here. With Extend Beans and this new dicamba-based active ingredient, are we going to see a larger shift in the market towards these kind of products and move away from Roundup Ready and Liberty Link soybeans? I don't know necessarily about moving away from Roundup Ready and Liberty Link because I think the hope is that, you know, if, if not already, there will be um, soybeans that are, of course, tolerant to both um, dicamba as well as Liberty or, or glyphosate, um, sort of a stack-type genetics in the crop. In terms of, of changing or shifting over to extend beans, what I've heard, and I'm not taking um, – uh, credit for this because it's it's certainly something I either remember reading or hearing somewhere is that this is going to be the largest adoption in one year of a seed technology that the market's ever seen that people are going to to plant extend beans in record numbers this first year. Wow. The two main reasons for that, uh, particularly, is last year the seed wasn't um, you know a lot of, because the herbicide wasn't available the market was ready for a big launch, but there just wasn't as much uptake last year. So there's plenty of seed stock available, which has kind of been what's hampered first-generation technologies before. But I think a lot of growers are still very concerned, even with improved labeling, even with the, the anti-drift legislation of potential drift on their beans. And so they're planting extend beans really as a safety mechanism. But that said, Research from, you know, most of the seed companies that I've seen is that there's not a, a yield drag in this first generation of Extend, which is something that you did see with Liberty Link and with Roundup Ready uh, in that first generation. And so where you can have comparable yields and sort of that, you know, additional mode of action as well as a little bit of insurance, you know, in case somebody does apply something incorrectly, I think you're just going to see a lot of growers and certainly the market shift to uh, extend beans this year in, in record numbers. Dr. Ferguson, it's going to be interesting to watch this uh, continue to develop. And I hope that as we get into the growing season, that we can talk to you again about what other changes are happening in the, uh, the weed science industry. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and would love to have a further conversation. You bet. I think we will. Thank you again so much to Dr. Ferguson for taking the time out of his obviously busy day to talk to us. And I know that some of that stuff can be a little dry sometimes, but it, it's really important right now for farmers, especially with all these regulations and possibilities for being fined. I think it's important that we understand as producers and 
know what the future holds. I think you're exactly right. If we want to ensure the the use of these new chemical uh, formulations going forward, we got to be good stewards of them today, which means both the drift and concern for your neighbor, as well as utilizing full rate, you know, following tank mix instructions and, and so on. Well, Mike, I don't know what you have planned for the rest of the week since you're in charge of interviews as of now, um, since I got the rest of them for this week. So what do we have going on? It's going to be a surprise. I've got a couple of uh, pretty exciting things in the pipeline, and uh, we're just going to have to see what shakes out. You know, Delaney, it's good to live on the edge of your seat a little bit. I think farmers are quite used to doing that. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, I guess, well, it'll be a surprise to all of us who we have on the rest of the week, but we promise to bring you tons of great information. And if nothing else, Mike and I will try and entertain you for half an hour the next couple of days. (laughs) 